Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm Clarence Boone, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 17th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. And good evening, I'm Liz Mitchell, Bring It On's producer for Dark Past, Bright Future, a recurring segment which focuses on the dark chapters in the African-American experience with an inherent hope for a much brighter future. We have an exciting show lined up for you this evening. That's right. The Eliza Tevis Society was organized in 2019 at the Bashford Manor Bed and Breakfast in Louisville, Kentucky, with a mission to discover and share with the public an informed story about the life and legacy of Eliza Curtis Hunley Tevis Coleman's journey out of American enslavement and the leadership contributions she made to the enslaved and free communities of Africans in Louisville and Jefferson County, Kentucky, and beyond. Clarence and I are speaking with Eliza Tevis Society members from Louisville, Kentucky, on the life and impact of Eliza. It has been my observation that history is most often written by those with access to power. Throughout history, women have faced oppression. Many women have been further marginalized by their race, class, sexuality, etc. Most marginalized and or oppressed women were in close proximity to wealth, whiteness, or another form of privilege. One woman in particular, who we are about to learn about this evening, did something particularly unheard of during the era of slavery in America. And much of the history and oral tradition regarding the founding of Petersburg, the oldest African-American settlement in Jefferson County outside of Louisville, centers around the life of former slave Eliza Tevis. Aunt Eliza Tevis, as she was referred to by many, was a Black woman freed by John Hunley, who afterwards became an owner of slaves. She taught them to work and hired them out to the farmers of the neighborhood. She owned about, the records show, about 50 black slaves. Some she bought and some children and babies were given to her by dealers who could sell the mothers to greater advantage when unbounded by children. Before drawing any rash conclusions, let's learn more. Oh, yes, absolutely. Here to educate us more on Eliza Tevis are her descendants, Ernestine Lyons Goodwin, Barbara Stevens, Edna Earl Green Sharif, Nathaniel E. Green. Also with us this evening from the University of Louisville is Belinda Bowie. And we also have Hills Heights Farm guest, Chad and Barbara Stevens. To all of you, welcome to Bring It On. Well, we want to thank you all. And, and my understanding is, is that you're assembled at the Bashford Manor Bed and Breakfast. And um, if someone can volunteer to give us a little bit of history about the Bashford Manor Bed and Breakfast, I, I'd appreciate that. Anyone? 
they're, 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 they're drawing lots now to decide who's gonna who's gonna speak first. <laughs> the, owner, the owner of Bash for Better Bed and Breakfast, Cynthia Cook, also has property in Florida, and she broke her foot and is unable to be here today. She would be the one to offer the history, but it's a very old house. Portion of it was built in um, the late 1790s, built by a family by the name of Bray, B-R-A-Y. Multiple families have lived here, and it now operates as a bed and breakfast. And uh, by by way of just background, everyone's going to weigh on, in on this, but who was Eliza Tennis? Let me start out the way we did in our previous conversation when we investigating this. Um, I look at it as she was a small lady, lady of small frame. She was uh, very gifted at working with people and addressing issues in the slave community. But the biggest thing was she took those talents out to 40 acres of land and she turned it into a place called Newburgh. And if you look at it, Newburgh was 40 acres but then it grew into this somewhat metropolitan suburban area outside of Louisville, Kentucky. Now, the one thing to remember, that community was a free black community. She won her freedom, but she joined with other blacks in the community. And as blacks began to discover that that was a place that could come once they were free, it began to grow. And even had a section called New Edition, which was kind of a uh, where all the new blacks came in who were not a part of the original uh, crop of African Americans who lived there, and that created additional little, I guess we we'll say, communities around Newburgh. Um, and they had different names. Who was one of the Golden Acres? Was Golden Acres was one of them called Black Mud. Black Mud. But these were all. Additional additional communities to that 40 acres that Liza Tevis originally acquired. And that's probably where the Bray family comes in mm -hmm. because that property was acquired with a kind of a, I guess you would say, a legal maneuver between the Bray daughter and Liza Tevis, where the Bray daughter purchased the property and sold it back to Liza Tevis. Uh, so I guess the women were quite clever in the way they dealt with issues. And uh, so be it, Newburgh kind of grew out of that and Liza Tevis, her home became the community. The, the school, the church, and all the different things that could come into a community, uh, she used her home to get them started. Okay, so to clarify for our listening audience, Eliza Tevis was an enslaved woman of small stature. It's my understanding she was a mulatto. Yes. And she worked for two brothers mm -hmm. who eventually she inherited 40 acres of land from. And that's how Newbird started, was from this 40 acres that she got from the two brothers. Correct? Correct. Okay. And from that, the community grew because other African-Americans moved into the area. My question to you is, what years did she, what year did she acquire that land and how many years did Newburgh last? Well, she acquired the, the first 48 that she acquired that in uh, 1851 with the help of 
Nancy Chenoweth Bray. And uh, she was married at the time to Henry Tevis. And they purchased these 40 acres in the wet. Well, this area was also known as the wet woods. And uh, they bought this property for $600. And uh, Nancy Bray inherited this land from her father, Samuel Bray, in 1845. And as far as Newburgh, it still is, is, a, is in existence now. 188 years. 188 years. Okay. Now, Newburgh was incorporated at one time, but lost its incorporation, and it's, but it's still there as a community. Okay. Now, uh, and, uh, Tevis also started a church. It's my understanding the church is still standing today. What is still present that was there when she was alive? Her presence, the church started in her home, and then it was organized by the Black Historic and Green Street Baptist Church. It was organized there. The school started in the church after that. So the school, the church, and the community was her legacy. And they're still standing today, the church they're and the school. All working today. Ah. New, New school still exists. Of course, it's in different buildings. And of course, the church has different buildings, but it still exists. We celebrated our 154th year anniversary in September. And she's buried in the cemetery. And she's also, she's also buried in her, uh, on, on the back of her lot. And we have a marker there for her. Oh, wonderful. Okay, I, I had a, a couple of questions, but I want to read a statement first. Uh, this is under the heading of Notable Kentucky African Americans, and there's a database that the state has put together or people have volunteered and, and contributed to this database. And under the heading of African American slave owners in Kentucky, in 1924, the Research Department of the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History completed a study of the free Negro slave owners found in the 1830 U.S. Federal Census. And the study found that 3,777 Negro slave owners uh, resided in the United States. And Negro slave owners were listed in 29 Kentucky counties. Now, ownership may have meant the purchase of a spouse, an individual's children, or other relatives who were not emancipated. And owners ownership was also an investment. Purchased children and adults may or may not have been given the opportunity to work off their purchased price in exchange for their freedom. And a history of world societies document a total of 6,000 Negro slave owners in the U.S. for the year 1840. In the 1850 and 1860 slave schedules do not identify slave owners by race, and the individual names of slave owners must be searched in the U.S. federal census to identify the individual's race. Now, Eliza Tevis got her emancipation in 1838. She was one of the earliest Black women landowners in Jefferson County. And when she was, she was born a slave and she was freed, and then she got married, but she had a prenuptial agreement. And that was a concept that probably wasn't very well known back then, or maybe it was practiced under different names, but she had a prenup to protect the ownership of her property. And she was one of the few African-Americans to own, to own slaves in Jefferson County. So we know the practice, while perhaps sort of startling to our hearers, it's it wasn't a very new concept back then. But here we have descendants 
from a woman who I would say was forward thinking in the purchase of slaves to give them both protections, freedoms, and an opportunity to advance themselves. I don't get the image of being a harsh, brutal slave owner, which uh, is very real in the minds of people when they think of slavery. But this woman was tactical in her thinking. And can anyone speak to that? Let me uh, let me try the whole concept of slavery is usually wrapped up in the ownership issue, but as what happened in Europe and other countries, slavery was not always defined as a person owning another person without some type of way out, and it was not geared to that person's skin color. The difference here in this country was slavery. The intent was to use the slaves to build the country, and the color of the skin was going to be the easiest way to identify the property. If the places where you really had large slave holdings, you had them because they were financially they were recorded on the books as a financial asset. And because of that, many people wanted to have as many slaves as possible. Now, there was a lot of problems that was created with that. But in this country, slavery was based on the color of a person's skin. The whole idea of bringing in Africans was you could distinguish them from us. And the one advantage they had in bringing the Africans over, they already had certain skills as a part of how they functioned in their tribes. They knew how to do certain things. They knew how to cook. They knew how to run a community. They knew how to, um, they, they, they had spiritual uh, uh, ideas about uh, who they were. Uh, all these things came with the Africans when they came to America as slaves. So if one were to talk about the difference between what grew up in America and what grew up as slavery in other places. People could sometimes buy their way out of slavery. Some people could work their way out of slavery. But here in this country, you couldn't do that. You, if you were Black, you were a slave. And you were property. There was, there was no, no way out. It was just the way the governing body had set it up. And that's the way they want it. And that's probably the, the rub that most people have when you mention slavery and its connections to today's African-American communities. Uh, as a follow-up to that, there was no uniform code of standards on how you treated your property. So it could vary between an owner and master to owner and master. If someone was a brute, they would be brutal to their slaves. If someone was compassionate, they would be compassionate to their slaves. There, but there was no uniform code of standards on how you even gave them domicile or lodgings. Uh, Liz and I have spoke in a previous conversation that some of these owners, not necessarily in Kentucky, but other places in America, were so harsh in their treatment that slaves could be chained in a yard without clothes or a roof over their heads. Like a dog. Because, because they really treated them like animals. And and, and, uh, and that is sort of the angst that comes, you know, that, that really resonates with a lot of people when they think back on that time. However, in this case, I don't, I get the case, I get the, uh, the, um, the notion that John Hunley uh, was a very kind person, even to the extent that 
he and Eliza were closer than just master and property. That perhaps there was a relationship there. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but somehow she was remembered in his will. So if someone can speak to how that came about, uh, I'm sure our listeners would like to know. I'm not exactly sure about the relationship. There, there are all kinds of speculations that we've heard in oral uh, history. Some people say that Eliza may have been a, uh, what do you call it? Uh, 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 there might have been a sexual relationship between Eliza and the Hunleys. Some say that she might have been a half-sister. So we're still trying to figure out what that relationship might have been and whether or not the Hunleys were actually benevolent people or kind people. I'm not sure because Thomas Hunley definitely was a slaver. So he bought and sold slave. That that was his business. How they treated her, we're not exactly sure. But um, I think whatever it was, Eliza took what the circumstances that she found herself in and she was determined that she was going to make the best of those circumstances and get what she needed for herself in order to move forward so the relationship I think we're still looking and trying to figure out some of these things so that's one of those things that I think there's still a question mark I would like to ask a question um, to help you guys with that have you done a DNA test? Has anyone in yes. the families agreed to that? The Hunleys as well as Tevis's descendants? Yeah, we, yeah, we are getting, uh, Edna can speak to this, we are beginning to get to a point where DNA may, may define everything. Uh, the DNA um, test that uh, Edna has come up with has proven to almost proven that there is a biological relationship between the Hunleys, the white Hunleys, and Tevis. Um, we, 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 that's just beginning, and DNA is reason. I mean, it, it, there was no way we could have gone through the papers to find this out. DNA is, is coming up. And it is in the process of working with, uh, what is it, what's the name of the, um, the, 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 the DNA? The DNA? Yeah. They do, they do the DNA. So. Oh, what the ancestry? Ancestry. Yeah. And uh, the, she is running into a thing where apparently the relationship between uh, Liza Tevis and the Hunleys, that whole relationship does have some biological implications. We'll put it that yeah. Right. Uh, do in, do you does anyone there have a copy of the prenup that they could read? I'm sure our audience, our listening audience, would, would be curious about a prenup uh, before slavery ended. Well, before before we get to the prenup, um, listeners need to know that the prenup prenup was not between Eliza and the Hunleys. It was, but after Eliza was emancipated and her husband. But, yeah. but before we even get to a response from our guests, if you've just joined us on Bring It On, we have the uh, pleasure of speaking with descendants of Eliza Tevis. And uh, it's a lengthy list, but we'll quickly go through it. We have Ernestine Lyons Goodwin, Barbara Stevens, Edna Earl Green Sharif, Nathaniel Green. And 
other representatives are there, friends of the family, uh, Belinda Bowie from the University of Louisville. And I want to hear from her because she does a lot of research in this sort of related area. And members of the Hikes Farm are guests here today. Um, so if anyone wants to sort of answer this whole issue of the early prenup arrangement uh, in this situation, that, that's fascinating. Well, I have part of the prenup. Uh, the parties that were involved in setting this up were Henry Tevis, Eliza Hundley, and James Guthrie. And James Guthrie was Eliza's attorney, and James Guthrie was a uh, politician, a lawyer, a statesman, <laughs> uh, and what did he end the the administration of the presidential administration in some type of way. James Guthrie. Yes. Yeah. He was the Secretary of he, Treasury. He was the Secretary Treasurer of the United States. And so Eliza, what however she was able to get his help in drawing up this particular contract, as well as I think some other things that he may have been involved in with her, uh, she took advantage of these things. So briefly, it, it, it says that whereas there is a marriage shortly expected to be had and solemn um, between said Tevis and Hundley, and it is agreed that they that this estate and property of said Hundley shall be uh, conveyed to said Hundley, the third party in trust for the separate use of said Hundley, and free from control of said Tevis in case said marriage takes place. So she definitely was safeguarding her interests, uh, the things that she was, uh, that were real to her and anything else that she was able to acquire on her own, she wanted to make sure that she stayed in control of what she had. So basically, uh, that was, in brief, some of what the prenuptial dealt with, is that Eliza was free without interference from Henry to have control over her own interests. And uh, what year was the prenup? Um... Uh, this was 1843, June the 7th. Okay. So our listening audience would know would you please, uh, if you have a copy of the will and how she got the property in the first place, can you read uh, portions of that for our okay. listening audience? Okay, she was she bought this property. Well, she and Henry Tevis they were married uh, in 1843, and in 1851 they purchased the uh, 40 acres from Nancy Chenoweth Bray in the amount of $600. And um, we have the deed. I don't have it in front of me. Did you bring that copy of the deed? We've been still, we've been working with Delinda. She, uh, she and another uh, student at the university have been going through the document that we have which was on microfish, and it is difficult to read, very yeah. difficult to read. But Delinda and another student, I can't remember her name. Sydney Webster. Yeah, they went through it. The student was able to decipher some things, and uh, they came up with the actual wording to the deed. Still, some of it is still 
you, it's, it's unreadable. You can't read it. So we still have some blanks in yeah. some places. But uh, basically, it's just saying that, you know, Nancy and Henry, they, they bought this property for the $600. And so we don't have the actual copyright in front of us. But what did she inherit from the brothers, the, the Hunleys? What, what she inherited basically from them, she got one minute. Let me stop. While she's looking at that, uh, we might uh, point out that uh, the, the, the uh, going back to the Hunleys, uh, she apparently had a privileged position with the Hunleys and uh, the Hunley family. So we don't know what that all entailed, but certainly her helping the two brothers back to good health when they, uh, I think it was the yellow fever, uh, I think it's the, it's the yellow fever, uh, a small, small pox, small pox. A small pox epidemic. Um, they were grateful for that. And uh, so there were a lot of things that impacted, but she apparently kind of ran the place, uh, the, the farm. Uh, she was kind of a, apparently a, a person who, who knew how to run a farm. Now, that's not unusual because there are other indications in Kentucky history of Black women running uh, farms in, in the Kentucky, Indiana area. And um, there's one I don't have my, my, my information before me that was actually married to a uh, vice president of the United States from Kentucky. <laughs> They're just now beginning to realize that. So that came out when, uh, when, when the present vice president people claimed she was the only person in the White House at the time. Although this black lady did not leave the farm, she was actually married to, and it was, it was known. Basically, Thomas Huntley, in his will, he says, basically, to a yellow woman now living with me called Eliza or Eliza Curtis, my house and lot on Green Street, uh, containing about 18 and a half feet front on said street by 100 feet deep, being the house occupied generally as a private residence and not as a grocery store to use uh, an adjacent alley during her life to live in or rent out also to her $2,000 cash to be paid soon after my death. And um, he also left her uh some slaves. Uh, he wanted the property to be sold uh, after after Eliza uh, after Eliza's death. Uh, he said that Eliza Curtis is now entitled to a bed, bed, bedroom furniture, bed clothing, etc., a cherry bureau as her own now in my house. 
after death of said Eliza, the house and lot given her is to be sold by my executors um, and uh, the amounts to be paid to Eliza in her purchase at this. Oh, okay. She was given a Negro woman named Mary. She was given uh, some monies. And so this basically, these are some of the things that Eliza was given uh, in Thomas's will. And that was in the year 1838? Yes, 1838. Okay. All right. This was in September, September 3rd, 1838. How, how was this received by other family members? Um, I, this didn't go on every day. And I'm just wondering how family members and people in the community reacted to this. Now, not that it was probably widely broadcast, but some were in the know that this went on. And I'm just wondering how that was received. Actually, actually, it'd be kind of hard to tell, but I will say that there used to be a guy who was head of the Newburgh Historical Society named Goodwin. Uh, Nelson. Mr. Goodwin. Nelson. Nelson Goodwin. And, and, uh, and Nelson, he told most of the stories about Liza Tevis because there were so many different versions oh, yeah. of Liza Tevis's life. I mean, it, it, was, it was like, you know, we wonder <laughs> you know, what this woman was about. Everybody had a different story, but Nelson Goodman seemed to understand. Uh, he seemed to have a, he seemed to have had an understanding of what was what because he was he was right there on the cusp of the change in in, uh, um, in age groups in which he knew a lot about the Tevises and what went on. Can I? I would like yes. to share uh, some of this. What he's talking about, this Mr. Nelson Goodwin, if I could take a few minutes to read this, um, he says that I would like to share with you how Eliza Tibbs contributed to our historical Petersburg Newburgh community. Mr. Nelson Goodwin, the historian for our community back in the 70s, said, there is a constraining power that will not let me forget the memories passed down to me from our older generations. The blessings and privilege that we now enjoy are built on the foundation of our past. These blessings are a heritage purchased by the sweat, blood, and tears of people coming out of slavery, risking and giving their lives that we can enjoy our present blessings. The wealth of this community is not monetary, but a rich legacy of spiritual values such as faith, hope, love, courage, perseverance, labor, sacrifice, and suffering to reach our goals. These values seem to be disappearing from us as a race. Mr. Goodwin, with his short memory, interviewed old-timers, pro over former slave owners' diaries, newspaper clippings, and deed books. These accounts of our history were written in the Courier Journal on November 11, 1989. Mr. Nelson Beam, as he reminisced about the intertwined histories of Petersburg and Newburgh, recounted days in the early 1900s when he sat under a chestnut tree and listened to my great-grand-uncle, A. Green, describe his experience as a plantation slave. He was mesmerized by the stories of a beautiful life in the antebellum, meaning before the Civil War. Life back then was a simple but very hard. I love those times. What gets me is that I can't believe how we were able to survive. 
Little information exists on how these two racially segregated communities, less than a mile from one another, along Old Shepherdsville Road, came together to form present-day Newburgh. Petersburg was settled by a free slave named Eliza Curtis Hunter Tibbets in the 1830s. It was known as the wet woods of Best Swamp, thought to be in, uninhabitable. It is the only land in the area the whites would sell to blacks. Petersburg got its name from Peter Law, a free slave who built a log cabin in the area, area shortly after the Civil War. The original Newburgh, directly south of Petersburg, was settled by four German immigrant families in the 1830s. Houses were built on Eliza's land that she purchased that her slave owner promised her. The historical Forest Baptist Church was started in her home, and Newburgh School was started in the church, and they both still exist today, as has already been stated. What a legacy we have. So concerned was Mr. Nelson Gilbert about the history and heritage of this community that his heart's desire was to have our history documented so that our present and future generations might always be mindful of this. From whence we came, giving God all the praise, honor, and glory for choosing our family to be the descendants of such a lady of great faith as Eliza Curtis Hunter Comatiris. Let us all be uh, beware lest we forget. I have a question. Thank you for reading that. That was very informative and interesting. I have a question for Belinda uh, Bowie of the Louisville uh, University of Louisville. People don't want to talk about Black slave owners, but here in America, there were Blacks who did own slaves. There was William in South Carolina. Uh, his name was April. He changed it to William. I can't think of his last name. In um, uh, Natchez, there was the barber of Natchez. He owned slaves that he had inherited from his mother, who seemed to me might have parallel with uh, Eliza Tevis. She was a mulatto and had an inherited slaves, and then her son thus inherited those slaves. Would you please comment to our listening audience about, if you know anything about this subject, and the take on Blacks owning Blacks in America during slavery? Unfortunately, I do not. Um, one of the things that we are now committed to is learning more about the heritage of our Black sisters and brothers. Um, we are trying to collect more material, learn more, study more, talk more. And being at this table today, I am just in heaven because I am learning so much um, from these new friends. And I am so grateful for this opportunity. Um, we will do better in future. You know, to that point uh, of just the stigma, of, of Blacks owning other Blacks. I, I still go back to the introduction that we read earlier that she purchased slaves and even had a heart to purchase the children because it was advantageous that she do so because the handlers or the traders, when there was a woman who had children, the value of that woman would go down if she had children because that's just right now another mouth to feed until they become old enough to become productive. 
And a lot of landowners didn't have the foresight to keep them together until that child grew. Mm-hmm. So as a mercy measure, um, and probably with a, a maternal heart and instinct, she bought these children. It's hard for me to even say the word she bought these children, but she acquired these children and gave them, I would think, safe haven, and then trained them, helped them grow, and then gave them some industrial experience or, or training so that they can go out and earn a livelihood. Uh, but still, there's that stigma that everyone has to ponder in their heart. Here we were an enslaved, uh, marginalized group of people, but then yet we owned others, and then even some Native Americans owned slaves. Um, and and it, is, it just, there's a pause you have to take to think and just grasp the significance of what this really means. But um, in her case, it seems like it was more toward um, a very compassionate side of owning these human beings and trying to give them some type of safe haven from the horrors of slavery. And Kentucky was known for being brutal to individuals. And that was a stigma that was unfortunately uh, levied against places like Kentucky and other Southern, well, other states, Southern states in particular, but states like Kentucky and on the East Coast. So, so what do you do with this memory of Eliza? Uh, I know that you created the Eliza Tevis Society. What's its mission? What's its aim to educate future generations of people? One, obvious, lest you forget, as our dear friend just read, lest we forget this history. But the Eliza Tevis Society, what is its aim and mission going forward? I think, uh, as is the case with most historical uh, groups trying to dig out information from the past, it is to try and get a story woven together that actually represents pretty much what occurred. Now, we know that history is not absolute. I mean, you know, everybody tells the history from their frame of reference. But the pieces, when you put them together, can become a kind of a blanket that tells a story or, or covers, either tells a story or covers the story up as to as to what actually happened. So what we're trying to do is to, to, uh, um, to, to I guess you would say, weave that blanket so that everybody can can be comforted comforted by the fact that somebody looked into it. And I, I say that because the difference between what we have today and what they were confronted with, their everyday battle was survival. I think Nelson Goodwin was right on the mark. Today we're just trying to relate what I contend is a lost history intentionally. Uh, there was no intention to to tell the story the way it should be. Most African Americans realize that, but don't know how to get at it. So the help of the University of Louisville and and uh, people like Barbara and her family willing to pitch in and say, hey, you know, we were part of it, but we also want to know what the, story, what, what the real story is. Uh, I, I think it's really the mission of the of the society. Um, we don't have any claim to the academic rigor that's necessary to, to make a history, you know, be certified. But in this case, the way history developed in this country, 
the black history developed in this country, you have to be willing to put it together and you're gonna to have to hear people's stories and kind of imagine this story that I heard and this story that I heard kind of solidifies and, and confirms or certifies that this is probably what happened. Now, I, I, I say that because um, right now there are a lot of people who feel put upon when you begin to bring up the whole slavery issue why are, you, why are you doing this? And my my thing is is that probably part of our social ill right now, the shootings and all this is related to many of these younger people have no way to hang their hat, nowhere to hang their hat. And I do think, and this is this is where this new date comes in and, and the need to have more accurate information that the failure to engage in the reparations was a failure that is harming both black and whites in today's world. Now, you know, the reparations really itself is not the issue. The issue is, is that blacks who, like Nelson Goodman said, uh, really sought to survive, um, really have no legacy at all. There, there is no legacy other than they were property, and and and, and that was that was it. So to try to build a picture that really rings out the things that this country is about, and that people like Liza Tevis was able to sit down and say, you know, I heard from uh, Guthrie that I could use legal means to do this, and so she sought to use legal means to do that. Uh, blacks kind of wade through this kind of thing. I, I might just throw something in here. I, I, since you, uh, you you were here from the University of Louisville, uh, my book, the, the Sound of Believers, you know, people don't understand how the church paid, played a big role in slavery. Now, many of them will tell you that was my intention today to say that, but we, we, are, we are part and parcel of what happened in the past. So how do you get out of that? How do you tell your today's children you have a wonderful past to latch on to when there is none. And many, many people's vision, there is no, there is no past. One of the things well, that I was so interested to learn today is the connection between Green Street and Newburgh. We have the records of Green Street Baptist Church. And you see very intentionally that they were a wealthy church, but they every month made sure that they spent down their savings by taking care of people um, instead of building wealth for for the church. So yeah, it's it's a wonderful history. Yeah, the, 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 the Catholic Church is a good example because the intention, the, the, the actual encyclicals for the Catholic Church worldwide was slavery was outlawed, period. But in this country, they couldn't do it because the Catholic Church was competing competing with the Protestant Church. And the Protestant Church had power, so the Catholics had to go along with it. Yeah. So when you look at the books in the Catholic in the Catholic community, like down in Barstown, and you see where slaves contributed more money to the church than did the white parishioners, you can wait, this doesn't make sense. But it does because many of those blacks saw that they had they had a stake in the game. It just wasn't it wasn't even. They had a stake in the game. Um you know, but when you talk to a minister or, or a priest, 
who will tell you, oh, well, you don't have to leave. You don't have to leave this 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 farm because uh, we want to we want to take care of it. And black sand, no, I want to leave. It's freedom. It's about freedom. People don't quite get it yet. It was it was about freedom. It wasn't about you know how compassionate you were. It's about what's going to happen to me. So the idea of reparations really had nothing to do with the money part of it. But the legacy has not been established, and I'm glad to find out that in many of the uh, uh, the efforts toward reparations is being launched to try to backstop things like education. Uh, but Blacks have never had anything to offer to the, to the people who came behind them during that time. And now it's time, it's going to have to be done. Somebody's going to have to sit down and rectify and say that this was it. It's going to have to go into the history books and we're going to say, yes, it was wrong. It, it, it's no more dancing around it anymore. And, and I will say that one of the reasons for that is that young whites are beginning to figure out, okay, you all play the game. Well, and this. that brings <laughs> to education, which is what my interest is. Although I'm a member of the Heights family who came in 1790 and when the, and they did own slaves. And when the slaves are enslaved people, you're not, not sure how we should say. Uh, when they were freed, gave them some property that adjoined the uh, property for Liza Tevis. But as Charles always said, they certainly didn't give them the best field. <laughs> so, but, but getting back to the education, uh, that and I've worked with you and, and with you, we had a nice program for a while. Uh, well, just one year actually. When with the school that's right there, walking distance from in, in Petersburg, Newburgh, Newburgh Middle School, Newburgh, Middle School. Uh, and and we had a, a a really interesting informative two day program with the eighth grade mm -hmm. social studies mm -hmm. teachers, and they were great teachers to work with, and the principal is wonderful. Yes. And uh, I think that was very successful. And then we worked at Farmington to try to educate the children. But it's not an easy thing to do because that comes far down on the list. They have to get up with the tests and such and go through the hoops that the education has to. And there's little time left, for, yeah. which should be far more important. There's a saying in industry now, they call it just-in-time inventory. Mm -hmm. Well, slaves were just-in-time inventory. Uh, you know, they, they, they represented the best way to, uh, to, to raise the crop, uh, to, to, to till the soil. And, and without any expense, they were readily available. If whatever you, whatever you said they need to do. Yeah. You know, the, these are these are interesting points, and I, and I want you to continue with that. But I'm both Liz and I are struck right now with what's occurring. Uh, one of the missions of the Eliza Tevis Society that you began to articulate on was the bringing together of people to discuss what you're discussing now, the history, the impact, the ramifications, 
and looking forward to a brighter future as Liz has dedicated her life to do in her Dark Past, Bright Future segments. Uh, the one thing that I, I really want to stress is that you're making attempts to gather people even now um, around common themes. But back in September, you reached out on Facebook and you said that we are reaching out to the collateral descendants of Eliza Tevis and the direct descendants of her sister, Mary Beard. Uh, and that would be the families of Golden, Green, Doty, Beard, Davis, Lyons, Coleman, Simpson, and on. And the Eliza Curtis Huntley Tevis Coleman Society, the Newburgh Pioneers, and she was a slave who was emancipated in 1838. You give the brief description, but you're, you're saying that we would like for your descendants to come to honor her legacy. On Saturday, September the 18th, 2021, 10 a.m. until dark. Bring your picnic lunches and drinks, tents, chairs, tables, bug spray, <laughs> games, artifacts, and stories so that you can do what you're doing now. And, and for our listeners, we are doing this through Zoom technology. We have the benefit of looking at a monitor at our guests. They are seated around a table and have had a meal, and are now discussing their history. I see white, I see black, seated together, laughing, enjoying their company, talking about a dark chapter in America, and doing so not only civilly, but with passion toward one another. And I think with all the social ills in America, with um, uh, critical race theory that's being pushed against, with teaching curriculums that are being pushed against, in an effort to, let's be honest, whitewash history, these particular efforts need to continue so that future generations like my daughters, Liz's grandchildren, whatever, will learn of the stories of what Blacks endured, and not just Blacks only, but other cultures have endured, and how we are thriving yet today. So with about seven, well, five minutes left before we wrap things up, I want to sort of get, go around and get some final perspectives maybe about a half a minute each uh, about what Eliza Tempest means to you and what you have dedicated yourselves to do to, to preserve her history and her story. So let's begin with uh, Nat, the, the lady that spoke eloquently about uh, some of the documents. Uh, we'll be reminded that it's a certain time, <laughs> but let's go around uh, the horn. And um, if you'll just give your, uh, your views on Eliza. I think, by looking at the story of Elijah Tevis, we can see the good, the bad, and the ugly of what our society has been. And, and her story can be pieced together in such a way that you can see that. But one of the things we haven't hit on is one of the members of society came up with you know, this thing called the Rose Girls uh, in slavery. Uh, that the uh, that, that were used as uh, as what's the, what's the term uh, uh, concubines or whatever mm -hmm. I know uh, in Mississippi where 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 I went to school at uh, that kind of happened and 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 the stories are there but nobody wants to talk about it you know mm -hmm. uh, I mean I, I you know the other part is is there uh, there's there's, there's not, but. I think it represents an opportunity um, to 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 at least face up to what you know what went on. I, I I'm not sure it's going to cure a lot of the ills, but I think there'll be more willingness to, for, especially for our young people, 
to buy into the fact that it's worth being an American. I think Eliza Temis was a sponge. I think she was a, probably a very brilliant woman. And I think that she gained information from John Hundley and then was able to use that information to her benefit <clears throat> and for her purposes. And I think that um, Eliza Tevis is <clears throat> the reason this group gets together. And we all care about each other. We have fun together. We share meals together. And we talk about Eliza Tevis. So it's, she's the reason. Well, I have enjoyed this group as much as any group I've been in, and that and I've been in a few together. <laughs> and um, and I have some new cousins. We call ourselves cousins. <laughs> and I have some new cousins. <laughs> and I've enjoyed it. Okay, we have time for a few more. Um, I've known of Eliza Tevis for years, just as an historical figure. But being here today has just, it's like um, a garden bursting into bloom. It's just an amazing group of people and I am so grateful. Okay, for me, uh, did you want to say something? For me, uh, Eliza, what she means to me is She's one of, I think, many remarkable this, uh, ancestors that I have that I can share with my children and other young people that where they can look at this legacy and say that if she could do it, I can do something too. And if she was this, then I can be this also. So to me, it's like, she, I share this with, uh, with young people, share it with my own children, and you can take something away from this and add it to your life to, to help to project you forward in your future. And with me, I am just so proud to be a descendant of Eliza Tibbets for the works that she has done. And like they said, for us to share with our children and our grandchildren so that they will know what a great legacy they come from. I would chime in one when we were previously talking about Eliza Tevis. Uh, we had one of the members who came, uh, was in on a conversation with Janice Carter Miller. And Janice made a statement which we all kind of laughed at, but really it's kind of true. She said, because she's the start, she's a short statue. Uh, you know, light skin, but 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 she's been into everything. She was a jazz singer and 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 you know all over the world. And, and she and she says, "I'm the incarnation of." I create more problems and business deals than they. <laughs> well, on on that note, we're going to have to sort of wrap this engaging conversation up. And again, it's more reason to gather together again sometime in the near future, but. Uh, Liz, if you'll go ahead and, and begin with a final statement and just go ahead and wrap us up here. Okay. Uh, my final statement is that I hope that you all continue to do this. I hope more of the white Hunleys will participate. And I would like to see you contact someone who could do a documentary or a movie about Eliza. 
that story deserves to be told and America needs to hear that story. And it's one of many. There are several stories similar to that. But if we can get that one out to the masses, um, then that'll open the doors for other stories that I know about that are similar to that. So with that being said, we want to thank all of you for for participating in uh, this segment of Bring It On. We are thanking Ernestine Lyons-Goodwin and Barbara Stevens, Edna Earl-Green-Sharif, Nathaniel Green, uh, Belinda Bowie from the University of Louisville, and the Heights Farm guests, Chad and Barbara. Thank you so much for sharing with us the life and legacy of Eliza Curtis Hunley Tevis Coleman's journey out of American enslavement and the leadership contributions that she made to the enslaved and the free communities of Africans in Louisville and Jefferson County, Kentucky, and beyond. And our special thanks to Abdul Sharif for his audiovisual expertise and bringing clarity to our audio quality as people are seated in the Bashford Manor uh, bed and breakfast this morning. Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringingon at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audiences in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, is bringingon at wfhb.org. Our show's executive producer is Clarence Boone, the one and only, and our assistant producer is William Hosea, with help from WFHB News Department Director Cade Young. Our original theme music was created by Jamal Effiam, with additional background checks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Liz Mitchell. And I personally want to thank our, our chief editor, uh, Chantal LaFontaine, for the wonderful work she does in pulling all the pieces together. And yeah. again, I'm Clarence Boone. And be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.